Hear now a reading from the Gospel according to Luke. Just then, a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have given the right answer. Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near to him, and when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him, and when I come back, I will repay you whatever more you spend. Which of these three, do you think, was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. As a lawyer, I know the value of words. Legal cases sometimes hinge on how a word is defined or even punctuated. So sometimes for fun, I like to try to figure out the origin of words or phrases. And it's always amazing to me how many of our phrases, especially our idioms, have a biblical basis. For example, we sometimes describe burdens as a cross to bear. We give advice to turn the other cheek. We praise volunteers who are willing to go that extra mile. And we sometimes caution our students to beware of a wolf in sheep's clothing. I'm sure if we got together and brainstormed a bit, we could come up with several other examples. However, more than any of these phrases, today's passage has become an adjective that has thoroughly permeated our society. A Google search for the phrase Good Samaritan returns many hits referring to hospitals and medical centers or other various societies seeking to improve education, economic, or other opportunities for the disadvantaged. But the height of infiltration of this phrase is in our media and legal system. Journalists spontaneously describe someone who stops to render aid as a Good Samaritan. The American legal system wanted to protect these kind-hearted strangers from litigation, so many states passed what are known as Good Samaritan laws. And I would venture a guess that many people who use this phrase 
do not realize that they are, in fact, quoting a parable of Jesus. So this morning, I would like to take a few minutes to explore this parable and how it impacts my work at the Baptist Joint Committee for Religious Liberty. While I would venture a guess that most of us in the room are familiar with the content of today's parable, its context is often overlooked. Jesus tells this parable to help a lawyer find an answer to his own question. The first four verses record a conversation between a lawyer and Jesus about how to inherit eternal life and correctly read Torah or Jewish law. The lawyer eventually asked one of the most practical questions of all time, who is my neighbor? So what did these early verses tell us? First, lawyers haven't changed much in 2,000 years. <laughs> then and now, we obsess about words and exact definitions. Jesus has told the lawyer that his summary of Torah, to love God with your entire being and love your neighbor as yourself, is correct. But this praise from Jesus himself wasn't enough for this lawyer. The text says he wanted to justify himself either before God or perhaps just in front of the crowd. So he broke the first rule of cross-examination, never ask a question you don't know the answer to, and asked, who is my neighbor? This question seems innocent enough. After all, Jewish laws encompassed treatment of many groups, including fellow Israelites, aliens, and strangers. So where was the line between these groups? Who were neighbors? Who were not? Was the, was the lawyer's neighbor limited to observant Jews? Maybe all Israelites. Perhaps Israelites and converting Gentiles. Maybe as expansive as Israelites and non-hostile Gentiles. In reality, though, the lawyer is not asking who is my neighbor, but rather who is not my neighbor. You see, he's wanting to take out a legal pad and make two columns, one for neighbor, one for not neighbor. People I love like myself, neighbor. People I'm permitted to ignore, not neighbor. Those whom I look out for, neighbor. And those who are someone else's concern, not neighbor. To answer his question, Jesus tells the lawyer what has become one of the most influential stories of all time. The story is simple, with a short, nondescript cast of characters. We have a man, a group of bandits, a priest, a Levite, a Samaritan, and an innkeeper. The setting is the dangerous road between Jerusalem and Jericho. And we all know the story. The robbers come upon a man, beat him, strip him, take all of his possessions. So the man is lying there in the road, half dead, and wondering, is this how things end? when he hears footsteps approach. Is this help? Or is this the robbers returning to finish the job? As it turns out, the footsteps belong to a priest. This is great news, right? The priest sees the man, but crosses to the other side of the road and continues on his journey. Next, a Levite came along, and he too saw the man, but crossed by on the other side of the road. So at this point in the story, the audience must wonder why these pillars of Jewish society didn't stop. 
The lawyer has previously summarized Torah for us, and the priest would have known it at least as well as this lawyer. The Levite's primary occupation was to assist in temple worship, and so he likely also knew Torah pretty well. And yet they both see a man in obvious need and actively avoid coming into contact with him. Although they surely would have wanted someone to stop and help them, neither the priest nor the Levite thought this man was deserving of the status of neighbor. In storytelling, there's a concept called the rule of threes. Good stories, memorable stories, often have patterns, and the smallest number needed to create a pattern is three. The first point in the story introduces our theme, the second point confirms it, and the third point drives the message home or gives us a shocking twist. So think about common three-point patterns. What do we ask of a witness in court? Do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? When President Abraham Lincoln famously described our government, he described it as of the people, by the people, and for the people. And I'm sure that everyone here is familiar with the childhood favorite story, Goldilocks and the Three Bears. The stuff of Papa Bear and Mama Bear just wouldn't do, but Baby Bears was just right. And so at this point in the story, Jesus has introduced for us, number one, the priest, number two, the Levite, And now the audience is waiting for number three, for the hero to arrive. They knew Jesus wasn't going to leave the man bloody and half dead in the road. Help surely had to be coming. But I imagine that they were expecting a regular, politically powerless, economically poor Jewish male. Someone like them. Someone they knew or might have been related to. With Jesus as the storyteller, some may have been expecting a twist, perhaps a Jewish boy, or to be really shocking, a Jewish woman. But the absolute last thing that anyone in this audience would have been expecting was for the hero of Jesus' story to have been a Samaritan. In fact, I think after Jesus said the word Samaritan that he was forced to stop to be completely silent for a few moments, for such was the utter shock and disbelief of the audience. You see, there was no love lost between first century Jews and Samaritans. Samaritans thought their Jewish cousins were apostates or religious backsliders, and Jews saw Samaritans as pro-Roman half-breeds corrupted by pagan influence. In his writings, the first century Jewish historian Josephus, along with numerous others, recount numerous tit-for-tat incidents between Jewish and Samaritan communities. And in John's Gospel, when the crowd called Jesus a Samaritan, it was not a compliment. This crowd didn't think that anything good could come from Samaria, and it's important to note that Jesus doesn't describe him as such. So what is it that this average Samaritan in Jesus' story does? He loves his neighbor as himself by having mercy on the stranger. He sees the immediate problem and implements a short and a long-term solution. He tells the innkeeper, money is no object, 
Do all that you can to restore this man. At the conclusion of the parable, Jesus returns to the lawyer and asks, So which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? At this point, the lawyer knows that Jesus has put him in his place. And let's be honest, we lawyers sometimes need to be put in our places. The lawyer's question was asked from a place of privilege. He and experts like him thought they were capable of deciding who qualifies or not for mercy. In giving the lawyer an average, ordinary Samaritan who better embodied Torah than the Jewish establishment, Jesus is shouting from the rooftops that we are more alike than we are different. Jesus has flipped the question from who is my neighbor to who needs a neighbor. The definition of neighbor is no longer defined by my obligations, but by the needs of others. But there is a fourth person introduced in this story who is often overlooked, the innkeeper. By including the innkeeper in this story, Jesus reminds us that we are not alone. The Samaritan did not have to fix or help the injured man all by himself. He had a helper, a partner, a friendly supporter. And isn't that true for us as well? We all have innkeepers, and we all are innkeepers. We can and should work in partnership and coalition with others. Trying to take on the world's hurts, needs, and problems alone is to not fully understand the way of the gospel. More than any other job I've held, the Baptist Joint Committee has shown me the importance of partnerships. We are a coalition of 15 diverse Baptist bodies with a mission to defend and extend religious liberty for all. We frequently partner with advocacy groups from across the religious spectrum, working with Jewish, Sikh, Muslim, Hindu, atheist, humanist, and other groups when they share our common goal. And while Jesus was not directly addressing religious liberty when he told this parable, its lessons impact my work on a daily basis. With talk of religious bans and registries, the liberty for religious minorities in this country has taken a real beating over the last year. Like the priest and the Levite, too many Christians stayed on the sidelines with an attitude that religious liberty protects me, but I'm not sure about you. They decided it wasn't their concern if another's religious liberty was trampled in pursuit of protecting their own. This attitude is antithetical to the best of our American legacy and Baptist tradition. Like the Samaritan, the First Amendment has no precondition, no religious test before its protections kick in. The First Amendment protects people of all faiths and people with no faith tradition. Its twin pillars prevent the government from promoting religion or unnecessarily restricting religious exercise, keeping religion a free and uncoerced choice for all of us. For we know, for faith to be vital, it must be voluntary. And put another way, if we can't say no, any yes is meaningless. The Baptist Joint Committee has worked for 80 years to ensure that these protections 
extend to all Americans, whether or not their religion is mainstream or fringe, popular or unpopular, historic or in its infancy. You see, we remember our Baptist history of encountering various levels of state-sanctioned persecution, from fines to banishments, from whippings to imprisonment, from the inability to marry to a prohibition on receiving the sacraments, all because we wanted to worship God as we interpreted scripture to demand. From our earliest days, Baptists have sought religious freedom, not just for ourselves, but for all peoples. From our Baptist co-founder Thomas Ellis in the 17th century, to Virginia pastor John Leland in the 19th, to the BJC today, Baptists have specifically called for all of our neighbors to be free to worship whatever their beliefs. Unfortunately, we don't have to go far to see threats to religious liberty in 2017. In Fairfax County alone this year, a church, Jewish community center, and mosque have all been vandalized. Waves of bomb threats at Jewish centers across the country included targets in Virginia, Maryland, and DC. And who among us will ever forget the video images of young men with torches marching through Charlottesville, chanting, Jews will not replace us. We at the BJC will certainly have our work cut out for us over the upcoming weeks, months, and years. And while it would be easy to become insular and only look out for ourselves, or bury our heads in the sand and hope things are different tomorrow, neither is an option for the BJC and the churches who co-labor with us. Jesus' parable of the Samaritan teaches us that we can't make two lists. The gospel doesn't allow us to pick and choose who is worthy and deserving of our support, our neighbors, and leave everyone else defenseless and championless, our not neighbors. At the BJC, we see our neighbors all around, knowing that a threat to anyone's religious liberty is a threat to everyone's religious liberty. And I hope that you will continue to be one of our innkeepers in these endeavors. Now is the time for each of us to be actively seeking out opportunities and partnerships to be a neighbor for those who are hurting, persecuted, or forgotten. As Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. taught us, we cannot give compassion by proxy. So this week, let's all be on the lookout for those in our community work and school who are in need of a neighbor. Let us pray. God of compassion and mercy, deepen our love for you so that we might see neighbors all around. Help us to live a one-list life, seeing opportunities to serve all those we encounter. We pray for those we might cross the road to avoid, those who have been excluded because of their race, their financial status, or their religion. May the dignity that is theirs be restored to them. Today and every day, may we remember Jesus' call to not define our neighbors by our obligations, but by their needs. Amen.